Okay, if you have a Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. We'll eventually get there. You can also turn to Galatians chapter 5. We'll eventually get there. You can also turn to Mark chapter 5. We'll eventually get there. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand when we'll be brought to you. Um, we're in a series on emotionally healthy relationships. And the thesis of this series is that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. That is the thesis of this entire series. So with that, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us um, the capacity to start digging and diving deeper into emotional health. I know for some of us, this brings up a lot of pain when we start digging. We don't know. We're scared of what we'll find. Or maybe we know what we found because we buried it there three years ago or whatever. And we just don't want to dig it back up. We, we believe, Lord, in your resurrection. And because of your resurrection, we believe in our own resurrection. And so would you resurrect things that we have written off as dead or things that we wish remain dead? Would you bring them back to life? Would you revive us, Lord? We pray, Jesus, that you would break every single chain that binds us, even of our past. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, amen. In Dostoevsky's novel, uh, The Brothers uh, Karamazov, a wealthy woman goes to an old monk asking about God. She specifically asks how she can know that God exists. And the old monk says to her that there is really no explanation or argument that can be made to achieve this. The only thing you can do is the practice of active love. To which the woman responds, this wealthy woman responds by confessing she often daydreams about giving up her life as a wealthy woman and living a life in devoted, loving service of others. She daydreams about, when she thinks about this, she imagines herself becoming a sister of mercy or living in holy poverty, serving the poor in the humblest ways. She daydreams about just giving her life, giving up all her wealth and giving her life to those in need. But then she says to this old monk, it crosses her mind how ungrateful some people are. And they would probably complain that the soup is, too, is not hot enough or the bread is not fresh enough or the bed that she made for them is too hard. And she confesses that she couldn't bear such ingratitude. And so her dreams about serving others vanish. And once again, she finds herself wondering if there is a God. And this is how the old wise monk responds to her. He says, love in practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Jesus taught that the way you summarize every law and commandment in the Old Testament, everything, if you're scared of the Old Testament, the way that Jesus summarizes the law and the prophets of the Old Testament is saying it boils down to loving God and loving others. And at the center of Jesus' teaching and the message of Christ and thus Christianity is actually about loving others that has its source in loving God. And this central message is why some of you still consider yourselves Christians after all the horrible stuff the church is known for these days. At the center of our faith in Jesus, who shows 
the love of God by self-sacrifice and mercy is love. And we want this. All of us want this. We want our faith to be demonstrated in love. John, uh, an early disciple of Jesus and literal follower of Jesus Christ, later in his life, after Jesus dies and resurrects and then ascends to heaven, later in John's life, he writes a message. He says, the message that summarizes everything is loving others. And he says that we can't possibly say that we love God whom we cannot see and hate our brother and sister who we do see. He says the way that we demonstrate and show our love for a God who is invisible is by loving in real ways those who are physical around us. And I don't think anyone, any of us would disagree with that. Loving wells is one of the goals of the Christian life. Maybe if you believe the Apostle Paul, it is the goal of the Christian life. Paul said in Galatians 5, he says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So we say that, we might even feel that, we might even sing that for, and, we, and I, I would imagine for sure all of us believe that theologically, but love in practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. We can imagine what it would be like to love our community group and to love our neighbors and to love our city and to love our world and people that don't agree with us and even loving our enemy. But in practice, it's really harsh and dreadful. And the reason why is because few of us know how to love. See, for most of us, we apply biblical truth with the relational skills we learn unconsciously growing up. Let me, let me say that again because I want you to understand this. You and I, we apply biblical truth to our lives, but we do that in ways, uh, the ways that we relate, that we learn growing up. For example, we apply speak the truth in love by speaking truth in blunt ways that gets the point, gets right to the point of someone uh, in someone's life and assumes we know what the other person's intentions are. Why? You're like, what are you doing? Oh, the Bible says speak the truth in love, so I'm speaking the truth in love. Well, where'd you learn that blunt way you spoke the truth? Oh, that's how my family talked when I grew up. So is that, is that, what, that's that what the Bible means by that? We apply peacemaking by not bringing up a subject or an incident so that we can keep the peace. By the way, Jesus never calls us to be peacekeepers, but peacemakers. And there's a big difference between peacekeepers and peacemakers, right? That's tomorrow night, by the way, lecture, okay. So this is how we keep the peace. We're like, oh, the Bible calls us to be peacemakers. So, so I don't really bring up that subject because I know that that's going to cause an argument. And I don't want to do that. What, what, where, how did you learn that that's what it meant to, to keep the peace or make peace? Well, how did you learn that? Oh, your, your family. Oh, that's how your family did it. Oh, I, I get that. We apply getting rid of all bitterness, rage, and envy by unfollowing people on Instagram and muting them on Twitter. <laughs> now, I know all of this because I've done all of this. And so the end result is an inability to live out the, our theology in relationships that looks anything like Jesus truly or anything different than the culture around us. And so what we need are skills. We need practical skills to help us live out our Christian theology of loving, loving others well. And these skills are what we'll be, we'll, we will be building out in our series. Today I want to talk about two skills that I'll teach right now. And you'll practice in your community groups. And they are stop mind reading and clarify expectations. So stop assuming, stop jumping to conclusions. 
and clarify expectations. Both of these skills are to help us practice to live out our theology of loving others. If we say we want to love others, we need, to, we need practical ways to do that. So first, stop mind reading. Okay, go ahead and play the video. Behind me is a old video. It might look like an old Atari game to some of you who are really old in this room. <laughs> it's from 1944, uh, 1944 study called An Experimental Experiment of Behavior by, by Fritz Heider and Maureen Samel. It was a landmark study where people were told to watch this short film and were asked what's happening in it. Now, if you're not watching this right now, if you listen to this on some other place, it's a film that showed two triangles and a circle moving across a two-dimensional surface. The only other object on the screen was a stationary re rectangle that was partially open on one side like a door. Now, when people were asked what was happening in this short film, of all the people in this study, only one test subject saw the scene for what it was. Geometric shapes moving across a plane. <laughs> everyone else, including me, maybe not right now, because if you go watch this on YouTube, everyone else, including me the first time I watched this, made up an elaborate story <laughs> to explain and make sense of what we're seeing. Like the big triangle is a bully trying to beat up the small triangle and take the circle home. Or the big triangle is an angry drunk dad that doesn't approve of his daughter's boyfriend. <laughs> or like they're all in prison and the big triangle is a guy named Big Bubba J and the circle is a prison guard who's escorting the new guy to his cell or whatever it is. And instead of registering inanimate objects, most of us watch this and imagine humans with vivid inner lives. And the point of this, the point of this is that we are storytelling people. We see the world in stories. Okay, it's gone. We see the world in stories that we tell ourselves and it happens automatically. It happens without us knowing it's happening. And these stories that we tell ourselves have enormous impact on our feelings. Like when I first saw that film, I got angry at the large triangle. I was actually angry at the large triangle. See, we tell ourselves stories to make sense of the world. And this is beautiful. And this is the main reason why we have so many problems in our relationships. We make up stories about why so-and-so looked at us like they did or why so-and-so didn't call us back right away. We make up elaborate stories about our family, our spouses, our community, our coworkers, our bosses, and about our pastors. Last week, a friend of mine from church came up to me and said they needed to talk to me um, right down here after church and ask me for forgiveness because they have been keeping their distance from me recently. They're detaching from me. And I was like, okay, um, yeah, I'd love to know what's, what's going on. And the person said it was because one Sunday, after church, he was down here talking and he bumped the communion table. After church, bumped it and like kind of the stuff kind of went everywhere. And at that very moment, he looked up and I was across the room and he saw me and he said, we locked eyes. And he says, I gave him a look that said, I'm mad at you. Why in the heck did you bump the communion table? And then he told himself, oh my gosh, he's mad. I bumped the communion table. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Why didn't he talk to me about this? Why did he just give me that look? And then he went away and he was thinking about this and he came back the next Sunday and the next Sunday we moved communion. 
And he said, oh. So now he's passive aggressive. I don't know if I can trust people that are passive aggressive that way. So he just pulled away and didn't talk to me for a while. I looked at him last week and said, none of that story is true. He goes, really? I'm like, no. First of all, I don't remember you ever bumping the communion table at all. Second of all, we, I mean, we love communion here, but it's not that, like, it's, it's not, we're not high church, so it's like, cool, you can bump the communion table, it's fine. <laughs> and we sometimes move communion in a second set, depending on what's going on during the ministry time. And he was just like, oh my gosh. Now we do this in a million ways every day. I do this too. When I don't see someone for a long time, I make up a story about why. When someone retweets something I don't agree with, I make up a story in my head about them. And they become that large triangle in my head. I think somehow they're like, they retweeted that from me. That's what they wanted me to read. I can't believe, whatever, right? And I, and I think I know their motives. And I think I know their intentions. And I'm sure of it. And the story makes sense to me. And what happens is the stories we tell ourselves have huge impacts on our emotions. Jerry Scazzaro in her book on emotional health says, the stories we tell ourselves have an enormous impact on our feelings. Consider the difference of what goes on in your mind when a friend who agrees to meet you for dinner is 40 minutes late. How different are your feelings when you tell yourself maybe he had an accident driving here or this relationship is clearly more important to me than it is to him. Each interpretation generates a different feeling. Why? Because our feelings are closely related to the story we tell ourselves about the things going on around us. To quit faulty thinking and maintain good emotional and spiritual health, we must make an intentional decision to stop mind reading and to verify our assumptions by talking to people in person instead of in our heads. Proverbs, uh, the book of wisdom in the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures has much to say about this very thing. Proverbs 18.2 says, fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Proverbs 18.13 says, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. Proverbs 18.15 says, the heart of the discerning acquires knowledge, for the ears of the wise seek it out. This is actually codified in the, uh, in, in the Hebraic law under the ninth commandment. Exodus 20.16, which I had you turn your Bibles to, says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, let me explain this for a second. When God was restructuring the former community of slaves that were coming out of the Exodus, and he was making them into a nation of kingdom and priests who would represent God to the world, he set into motion the way this community was to treat one another. This is codified in the Ten Commandments. And the Ninth Commandment realizes that viable human community depends on truth-telling. This commandment really isn't concerned with personal white lies that we tell, about ourselves, though the scriptures say something that deals with that specifically. What the ninth commandment gets at is the public portrayal of reality. This commandment insists that when we give testimony about another person, we must resist every distortion of reality. We must speak the truth about them lest we condemn an innocent person. See, the way the Ten Commandments work is that they forbid the most extreme form of any particular sin. Murder is the worst kind of hatred. Adultery is the most destructive sexual sin and so on. The Ninth Commandment forbids the deadliest lie. 
one that condemns an innocent person for a crime they didn't commit. Okay, so hear me out. When we jump to conclusions about other people that likely are not true, when we assume we know why someone did what they did and tell ourselves a story based on our opinions and our observations, we are risking believing and even telling a lie about that person that condemns them. It is bearing false witness. Peter and Jerry Scazzaro write in Emotionally Healthy Relationships Workbook. They say, every time I make an assumption about someone without confirming it, I am at risk for believing a lie about this person. My assumption is just a breath away from misinterpreting reality. Because I have not checked out my, my assumption with other, the other person, it is very possible I am believing something untrue and effectively bearing false witness against my neighbor. I am especially prone to this, in, this temptation when the other person has hurt or disappointed me. That also makes it more likely I will pass on my false assumption to others. When we exchange reality for mental, a mental creation, a hidden assumption, we enter a counterfeit world. At that point, we exclude God from our lives because God does not exist outside of reality and truth. We also wreck relationships by creating needless confusion and conflict. Assumptions in relationships, mind reading as they call it in emotionally healthy relationships, have the possibility of being as unjust in condemning an innocent person by your false testimony. It destroys lives. I can't tell you how at the root of every relational problem and blow up I've had in my life, and some of them have done serious damage to my life or in my life, had its root assumptions, had at its root stories that we tell ourselves about other people. Assumptions that were not, were not clarified. Assumptions that were not talked about. Assumptions that not, were not brought to me or I brought them to someone else and say, this is what I'm assuming and this is the story I tell, I'm telling myself. Is that true? And if it's not true, I'm going to give you all the grace in the world to help reorient my reality. Yes, that's true and that's not true. The stories we tell ourselves about someone is so important. At this point, it would be good to hold up an example of someone who does this right. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a remarkable example of someone who did not take things personally like this. I mean, her story at the beginning of the Gospels is just moving on how, um, how she was able to hold things in her heart without making judgments. It's quite moving to ponder her apparent lack of resentment toward Joseph after he planned to divorce, divorce her quietly. It's obviously public knowledge because it ended up in the Bible. As far as we know, she had no nasty words for the innkeeper who wouldn't give her a room even though she was nine months pregnant. Later, when it came time to consecrate Jesus as an infant in the temple, Simeon informed her that a sword would pierce her own soul. That was the, the prophecy given over, over Jesus. Uh, uh, something will pierce him, but it will pierce your own soul as well. Rather than getting offended or resentful toward this old man's difficult words, like any protective parent might be. I can't imagine someone saying that to Ashley when she was like walking out of the hospital with our baby. The Bible says what, ha what Mary did was she pondered and treasured these things in her heart. She just pondered them. 
She didn't let them offend her. She didn't go, she just held them into her heart. We don't know what Mary was thinking, but she could have easily convinced herself, there's something wrong with me. Or she could have said, there's something wrong with this baby. There's something wrong with my husband. There's something wrong with people around me. She appears to demonstrate great restraint in not telling herself negative stories about others when she didn't understand their actions. She pondered them in her heart. Her ability not to take things personally is perhaps one of the great secrets of her spirituality. So that's the first skill. First, it's negative. Stop doing that. Stop it. Whenever you find yourself assuming or mind reading, knowing other people's intentions, stop doing that. But here's the positive thing that you can do. Clarify expectations. So number two, clarify expectations. Now, I think we can all understand why this is an important skill. Unmet expectations wreak havoc on relationships. People leave jobs over unmet expectations. Churches split over unmet expectations. Couples divorce over unmet expectations. Families stop talking. Community groups dissolve due to unmet expectations. And the really mischievous thing about expectations is oftentimes we don't know we have them until they go unmet. They live in our subconscious until someone disappoints us. I remember when Ash and I first got, first got married and we're putting on the sheets to our bed after laundry day. She put on the sheets and then she grabbed the comforter and was about to throw the comforter over the, the made bed. And I stopped her. I'm like, whoa, wait, are you going to iron the sheets? <laughs> she's like, she's like, what? I'm like, you're going to iron the I mean, it's like wrinkled from the dryer. I mean, you're going to, we're going to iron them? Are we going to, are you going to, are you going to iron the sheets? She's like, no, I'm, you, no, what are you talking about? I'm like, and I was explaining to her, like, you know, they're wrinkled. I mean, iron wrinkled things. Like, is that a, and she's like, you are a psychopath. No, no one irons sheets. That's not happening. We're not doing that in our house. That's not, and I had this subconscious expectation that when we got married, I don't know where, I, that we would live in a hotel. I don't have any idea. I don't know where it came from, but I had this thing that I just like, placed on her. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I, I don't even know where this came from. The problems with most expectations we carry in relationship are this. Here are the problems with our expectations. First of all, they're unconscious. We have these expectations that we're not even aware of until someone does something that disappoints us. The other problem with expectations is that they're typically unrealistic. We have these illusions about other people about our leaders, about our friends, about our community group, about the church, about the city. For example, we think a spouse or a friend or a pastor will be able to and available at all times to meet our needs. And they're unrealistic expectations, but we just have them. We just place them on people. Or that um, the church will be exactly like Acts chapter 2. Like, or whatever, right? Like, I just read the Bible and that's just, I expect this is what happens. Like, no, if it did then you would have none of the rest of the New Testament. <laughs> Acts was written, and then every other book was written because they weren't doing that. Like, no church does that. You can write books about it wanting to happen. It doesn't happen because people are sinful. The, next, the very next two chapters later, someone dies because they weren't doing community right. So it just doesn't, 
don't, don't put your expectations on the church that way. They're unrealistic. Is there a, a room full of sinners? Okay? So they're unrealistic. Or they're unspoken. The third thing they are, they're unspoken. We might not have ever told anyone that we have this expectation at all. But as soon as they don't meet it, we are so angry, hurt, disappointed that our expectations are not met. But we have no idea. The other person has no idea you even had that expectation. Or lastly, they are unagreed upon. You actually might have talked about it, but you might have talked about it in like a text message or like in a passing comment like, you know what would be really cool? The other person's like, oh, that would be cool. They're like, oh yeah, that was an expectation. They're going to do it now. No, they never agreed on it. They never said, I will do that. They said, yeah, that would be cool if you ironed the sheets. But that ain't going to happen or whatever, right? It's unagreed upon. We may have passive aggressively set our expectations out loud or even in writing, but never had an adult conversation where the other person agreed to the expectation. Expectations can only be valid expectations when they have been mutually agreed upon. Now, let's stop here for a second. Some of you guys are like, this sounds like a lot of work. Yes, being an adult is a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. Marriage, friendships, community groups, your expectations of me as your pastor or one of your pastors, this is important. My expectations of you. I know I have unmet expectations of you as a church, but I never tell you them. And so I, I, ha- I, have, to, I have to then go back to this and go, well, no, it was just a, something I never said. It's something I felt. It was some sort of thing I read about, you know, this is what that church did to their pastor. And I, and, I, and I have to let that go. I have to like deal with it. Or I have to have a conversation with the board or with the elder board or with the church. Like, hey, this is kind of what I ex- expect. I expect this. Can you agree upon that? I have to do that. You have to do that. Expectations, for them to be established, expectations must be, and you should write this down because I literally have a note that I pull up from my phone all the time. Save note. Expectations must be conscious, realistic, spoken, and agreed upon. Conscious, realistic, spoken, and agreed upon. I have these written on my, in my phone and come back to them often in conflict because typically in conflict, something has broken down here or when I'm trying to get on the same page in a relationship. So first, I have to become aware of the expectation I have. Sometimes this takes to work. Ash and I got in our biggest argument of parenthood so far over crumbs left on the kitchen counter. (laughs) Anyone who's married knows exactly this is how the way it goes down. It's never something huge. It's always something small that has all this stuff underneath it. So it took us actually like three, four, five days maybe to figure out what was the conscious expectation that we had underneath this stuff. Is it realistic? Can ask yourself or the other person if your expectation is realistic. Is this something that you can do? Is it spoken? Can you speak this expectation clearly, direct, directly, and respective, respectfully to the other person? And can the other person agree upon it? And I would say this at the end, practice, practice, 
practice. This is not something, I know that we, the way that we absorb information is like these days, just by like listening to it and like, oh, I, I heard it and it moved me and therefore I'm that thing now. <laughs> and that's not how this works. You have to practice this. So think about maybe in your community groups you're going to practice this, but you can even start thinking about um, today, like what, where are you disappointed with someone else? And then do this practice. Have a conversation with them. Okay, so what about when an, ex an expectation goes unmet? This is where a clarifying conversation is needing, needed. Let's say you had, uh, say your community group, your CG, has movie night at your place every first Saturday of the month for the last two years. Every first Saturday, everyone in your community group shows up and, and is there for movie night. And then someone in the group gets married. And their new schedule, can't they can't make it anymore because of that. And you say, but it was agreed upon. You should have worked this into your vows. Like you knew this was agreed upon. <laughs> this is an agreed upon expectation. We all had it. And you're supposed to show up at my house every, what if that person says, I can't meet this expectation. I can't do it. Marriage, I can't do it. Then what happens for you then is that this expectation needs to move into a hope. You can no longer expect it. You can now hope for it and then grieve the loss of it. This is really important because we have expectations that they're agreed upon and things happen and change and the other person can't meet that anymore. Then you have to have a, a clarifying conversation. You're like, okay, I'm going to move this now from expectation into hope. I hope that you can make it some movie nights now and I'm going to grieve the loss of having you there for movie nights. That's what needs to happen. But what if the other person says yes, they agree upon the expectation, but then it doesn't happen. Well, then this is where more conversation needs to take place. Maybe they felt like they couldn't say no to you. If they couldn't say no to you, then it's not a request, it's a demand. And so it's not an expectation, it was a demand, and you have to sort that out. Like, did you feel like you can say no to me? No, I actually didn't feel like I can say no to that. So I didn't know what to do with that. So I just said yes and then lied. I don't know. And so you have to explore that. Maybe you weren't clear enough. Or maybe you thought they could, they thought they could do it, but it ended up they couldn't do it. And this is where you explore what breaks down. This is where you have to have an adult conversation. Amen. Lastly, what if God doesn't meet your expectations? What happens when God doesn't meet your expectations? I'll say that we, all of us, want to know what God is doing when God will do it, and what it will look like when God does it. The bottom line underneath that is we really do like control of God. We say, God, I'll do this for you and that for you, and I expect you to do this for me. I expect you to make me happy. I expect you to make me stable. I expect not too much suffering all at once, spread it out a little bit. That's what I expect. Now, here's the thing. God is faithful, and God is just, and God is loving, and all that is true. But the way the faithfulness and the justice and the love of God fleshes out in your life will probably not be the way you think it should be. Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through 43, tells a story, this like interlaced story between a... Uh, a guy named Jairus and a woman that was, was bleeding for a very long time, menstrual bleeding for a very long time. 
And the story is an overlap because Jesus is moving through a crowd and Jairus, who was one of the synagogue leaders, runs up to Jesus and says, my daughter just fell ill and is about to die. I need you to come over to my house and pray for her that she's made well. And Jesus says, agrees. He's like, okay. So they start walking over to his house. But at that very moment, this woman who was bleeding for 12 years, kind of when everyone's touching Jesus and, and, and this huge crowd's following, just like reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And she believes in her mind that if he, she just touches Jesus, she'll be made well. And so she believes this and she touches the hem of Jesus' garment and is made well. The thing is, Jesus feels healing power leave, like come from him, which is such an interesting thing. Like everyone's pressing around him. Everyone's touching him, but he feels this healing power. So he's like, hey, everybody, everybody stop, stop, stop. Who just touched me? And the thing is, everyone's touching him. This is really weird, right? Everyone's touching you. We're talking about everyone. Everyone's touching you. No, someone just touched me and got healed. And this woman didn't say anything at first. She didn't want to say anything. And then Jesus asked again, I just felt power leave me. Someone here got healed. Who was it? And this woman said, it, it was me. So they have a dialogue. And Jesus said, it was your faith in me that made you well. It wasn't your superstition because it was kind of superstitious, right? Like if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. And then I won't have to be known. And I'll just kind of do this like drive-by healing thing. And I just won't have to like come go out public. And she, and he stopped her to make sure he knew, like, you're, and it was your faith in me that made you well. Okay, so all this is happening. It's this beautiful scene. You probably, if you were part of that, you probably would have forgotten Jairus' daughter is dying. They're on their way there. As soon as he's done healing the woman, one of Jairus' friends comes up and says, she died. She died. Don't bother the teacher any longer. She's dead. At that moment... I don't, I, I can't imagine what Jairus' face looked like. To like have the, the healing potion there in Jesus, like the medicine right there. And all we need to do is get you the medicine to her in this bandwidth of time. And then this flipping lady tries to like touch you and get healed. And why'd you have to stop to, to talk with her? She was healed. Just let her go. This woman needs healing. This daughter of mine, this baby girl of mine needs healing. And so Jesus looks at Jairus and says, don't doubt, but believe. Actually, the word in uh, Greek is keep believing. Uh, don't, you, you believed like 30 minutes ago. Keep believing. So they walk over and um, Jesus says to the little girl, Talitha kum, which means little girl, wake up. And Jesus raises her from the dead. Now, this story right here, you had two different people, Jairus and a woman, who, were, who, who had a plan. Here's my plan. The woman had a plan. I'm going to just swing by Jesus, touch the hem of his garment, peace out, get what I want and leave without him knowing who I am. I don't really get to know his. He's not involved me in his life. I just want the healing and I'm going to be gone. That was her plan. Jairus had a plan. Jesus, come over to my house and heal my daughter. Neither of them got what they planned. Not, neither of them did. What the woman got was a was like this reorientation from this superstitious faith into the person of Jesus. She had to go public with the fact 
of what was going on with her in her life and even in her physicality. She had to look Jesus in the face and realize it was, it was Jesus who healed you. What Jairus got was not a healing, but a resurrection. He never signed up for a resurrection. He signed up for a healing, right? I need you to heal her. No, no, you're not getting a healing today. You're getting a resurrection. And the thing is, is that they both came to Jesus with expectations. This is what we do. We follow God and we have our plan. We follow Jesus and we have expectations. And Jesus, God, never meets our expectations. Sometimes, like in this case, he supersedes our expectations. Sometimes it takes a very long time to see how God meets our expectations. A spiritual writer that I love to read and, and spend time sitting with what he writes has this, this sentence that I almost hesitate to say. I don't think I've said it here yet because you could take it wrongly. I did at first until I spent time meditating on it. And he writes, and it's Ron Rollheiser. Of course, you've heard me talking about him a ton, whatever. He says, you have to forgive God for the way you thought your life was going to turn out. For those of us that are disappointed with God, you have to forgive God for the way you thought your life was going to turn out. Now, obviously that needs a lot of qualification. God didn't sin against you. So that needs to be qualified. But when you sit with this, when you sit with this thought, you actually probably, in your disappointment with God, had all these expectations that you didn't even know were conscious. You had all of these things that you assumed about God. All these things that you're like, I read this Old Testament story. And this is what I assumed about you. I grew up in church. what I assumed what would happen. I would follow you. And these are my assumptions about the way my life was going to go. Here's my expectations, the way you were going to do this thing. And they don't happen. Some of us are still waiting to be mothers. Some of us are still waiting to be wives. Some of us are still waiting to be healed. Some of us are still waiting for whatever. And we're disappointed with where God has us right now. We're disappointed. And what we need to do is sit with the, the reality of just forgiving God. Saying, and this was part of my spiritual uh, journey and awakening as well. God, I forgive you for the way I thought my life was going to turn out. Not that you sinned against me. But I have to forgive you for my expectations that I placed upon you. I have to forgive you for the things that you didn't meet so that you and I can heal and we can move on together. Because I have these ways that are subconscious sometimes uh, that I see my life going and you don't meet them. And you know what? I'm okay with that. That might be a really hard place for you to get even today, especially how we turn that around because you thought you were getting tools on how to treat other people and that's really important and good, but you didn't realize that you had all this stuff with God and you're really, really hurt or disappointed with him. And I want to frame this well. God didn't sin against you. His plans and his ways are, I don't understand them. He, he says you won't understand them. And so it takes this trust, it takes this surrender like Jairus did, like the woman did, to the plan of God and surrendering our plans to God. And so as we move into this, I know that there's, I don't know what's coming up for any one of you. It could be very, the Holy Spirit might be putting his finger on a relationship that you had that is so broken you thought there was no way forward, but then this expectations language gave you language right now to go, oh my gosh, that's what I've been doing. 
And you need to forgive them in your own heart before you can have a conversation because there's a lot of anger and bitterness still there. Maybe that's what the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on. Maybe it's your relationship with God and all the expectations you have of God that you're placing on God that you just need to spend time in making that right again. However it is, we want to move into a time right now where we respond to that. So would you stand with me as we pray? Let's just, if we could, be just still before God for just a couple moments. If you would, open your hands in a posture of receiving. In a posture of receiving. Let's just, let's just be silent for just a couple moments. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Spirit of the living God, you are a comforter. I know that there's some people that need comfort this morning. Would you comfort those that need comfort? Holy Spirit, you are truth. Some of us are believing lies today. Would you come in, divide the truth from the lie, and expel, destroy, aggressively just take down the lies? Holy Spirit, you're a light. There's some of us that are in a dark place. Would you illuminate today? Holy Spirit, you're like wind. Some of us are really far from you. Where can we go from your spirit? Reach us where we thought we were completely lost. In Jesus' name.